Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are David Crow, our banking editor, Stephen Morris, our European banking correspondent, and Nick McGaw, our retail banking correspondent. Our guest this week is Eric Moore from Mighton Income Fund. This week, we'll be taking a look at HSBC as it unveils a restructuring, UBS, where a similar investment banking restructuring is underway, and Lloyd's takes a reputational hit as it mishandles client wills. First out to HSBC, David, you wrote a couple of weeks ago now that the bank was planning to cut up to 10,000 jobs as it tries to get to grips with certain of its underperforming divisions without explicitly confirming the job cuts number yet. It has basically confirmed that this big restructuring is underway. Tell us exactly what has been announced. So I think, in a sense, they were bounced, if you like, into making this announcement slightly earlier than they would have liked. um, By you. By us, and and then some subsequent stories adding a little bit of colour to where the job cuts might take place. So this week, they gave us a steer, as they put it, to the sort of broad outlines of the restructuring, which has two parts. The first is a tried and failed method at HSBC to try and move assets from low returning markets in continental Europe and the US to high growth Asia. And the second and perhaps more interesting in the sense that it hasn't been tried before is to try to do something about HSBC's broader cost problem, its structure, its complexity and hierarchy in the bureaucracy. That first point around the distribution of costs and capital and so on is a striking one at HSBC, isn't it? Because they make something close to 90% of their profits out of um, Asia, uh, particularly Hong Kong. And yet, what, more than half the balance sheet is tied up outside that region in low returning Europe and the US? Yes, about 50% thereabouts of the risk-weighted assets are in Europe and the US. And of course, HSBC has tried to do this before. When I was looking through the language used by Noel Quinn, the interim chief executive who's working on this restructuring, it was very similar to the language that Stuart Gulliver, his predecessor but one, used in 2015, reshape the bank, redeploy capital from low returning markets to high gross markets. HSBC has known that it's needed to do this for years, but it's got a problem with the execution. You know, they stand up and say, we're going to do this. But then it doesn't happen. No, absolutely. Well, let's bring in Eric Moore here. Eric, you run the Might and Income Fund. And I can see from an income investor's point of view, you probably very much like HSBC. It's a very decent dividend payer. And the yield is among the highest on the FTSE 100, uh, has been for quite a long time. Where does that put you in terms of your faith in this latest announcement? Well, you're absolutely right about the income. The shares yield 6.7% now, which is a lot compared to kind of anything pretty much on the planet. You know, and there was a difficult statement yesterday, but they did confirm their intention to at least hold the dividend. 
And the other positives are that, you know, this is still a bank that made $5 billion of pre-tax profits in three months. It's not quite the end of the world. And the capital position of the bank is very strong. So, you know, there's nothing existential about what's going on here. But we can't expect any growth in dividends for the next few years. Although I like yield, I also want to see growing dividends too. It's a very important part to how you're going to make money out of shares in the long run is growth in the dividends you get as well as a, as a decent starting yield. Yes, I suppose it was some comfort that there was a confirmation of the dividend being held because there had been suspicion that they wouldn't be able to afford a drastic restructuring without eating into that. Yeah, and to follow on what you've said already, I mean, the slightly tricky part now for the shares, I think, is we're in a bit of a holding pattern until we get the full detail on what they actually intend to do, which isn't going to come probably until the full year in February. So you know, the shares haven't really got anywhere to go until we get the details on that. The bank has flagged that shareholders should brace themselves for further restructuring charges and write-downs. Are they going to be severe enough to put any pressure on the capital position of the bank or their dividend-paying ability? I mean, it seems unlikely. But, you know, it is a continuing disappointment for shareholders. As you said, we've been here before. You know, I'd probably go further back and say, you know, it's 10 years since the credit crunch and we really haven't got much further along in terms of what is this bank actually aspiring to be and ongoing shavings of the footprint, ongoing sort of question marks about do they want to be in investment banking, do they not, their positions around continental Europe and the US. These have been sort of discussion points for a long time. And are we really going to get a conclusive answer to that when, rather oddly, the person leading these changes now is an interim chief executive? Yeah, that is unusual. And it's not very HSBC. I mean, over the years, they've always been very well behaved in their corporate governments and how their management transitions. So the new chief exec always has a sort of long handover from the old chief exec. They're usually HSBC lifers and, you know, in its sort of evolution and all quite carefully choreographed to ensure sort of minimal disruption. This time, we know, we've just had a recently sort of ejected chief exec. We seem to have a very active chairman. We now have a temporary interim chief exec who's putting out, I suppose, an acceleration of the strategy, which makes it slightly awkward for anyone who's then coming in to be chief executive on a full-term basis if there's now a strategy in place you know what do they make of that do they have to sign up to that ahead of joining so i think these questions about what's going on around the boardroom do show that the bank is in perhaps more of a difficult position than it has historically been a final thought from you david eric mentioned there the role of the chairman mark tucker who's got a reputation for being pretty forceful he obviously pushed out the previous chief executive after a very short time is he the one pulling the strings here does that make it academic? Who is the CEO? Will Noel Quinn get confirmed from interim into permanent? What are your thoughts on these questions? Well, I think Noel Quinn seems very confident that he will be unveiling this plan in February at the bank's full year results. And so that does suggest that if he doesn't get the job full time, the next person will either have to come in and adhere to this plan or they'll have to junk it and start again. And of course, if they do that, they have to work on another plan that takes several other months to draw up and so on. And before you know it, you've come to almost a year where HSBC has been going sideways. So it's a really interesting thing about HSBC. It's this big bank that prides itself on being like the military or the civil service, a lot of structure and so on. And they cannot get succession right. They mm. seem to muck it up every single time. Well, we'll keep a close eye, particularly from now until February. Thank you very much for your thoughts. Let's move on to our second story of restructuring and a look at UBS, where, Stephen, your predictions came true. You've been writing for several months that the investment bank is in a bit more trouble than the bank has recognised, and now they've finally come out with a 100 million Swiss franc restructuring plan. What is going wrong with their investment bank, and what are they hoping to achieve with the restructuring? Well, what's going wrong with UBS Investment Bank is partly an industry issue. 
structurally fees are in decline. Trading has been hit badly by a lack of volatility. It's also partly a European problem. European and Swiss banks, UK banks are losing market share to the Americans at an increasingly rapid pace as they're unable to keep up with their technology investments. They're unable to hire and retain the best staff because of disparities in pay. But UBS has felt this particularly hard because it's a big equities house. They do a lot of equities trading and they're very focused on Europe and Asia, the two regions when compared with the US that are performing far worse in terms of generating revenue. But also on the advisory side, UBS has traditionally had a very strong M&A advisory business, and that was hit quite badly in the third quarter and had a terrible first quarter. So they're looking at restructuring these businesses, linking them closer to the wealth management unit, which is, of course, the major driver of profit at UBS. So increasingly, we're seeing the investment bank, not as a subsidiary, but definitely playing second fiddle to uh, the demands of the wealth management unit. And the changes they're making now are really just solidifying this trend. I suppose the big question is, will they work? Because they do have, as you say, more headwinds than the competition. There was a striking chart that published with your story the other day. I think they had kind of red blocks against their name on every field, equities, fixed income, Mm -hmm. advisory, revenue and profit, which no other bank did, despite the problems of Goldman Sachs and so on in certain spheres. Will this restructuring deliver? Well, at the moment, what they've done is they shuffled everyone around, changed the name of a few units and said that they're going to explore more revenue synergies. So there's a lot of change on the surface, but underneath, they're still the same bank. The same people are still running it and they're pursuing broadly the same strategy. What is very clear is that their investment bank costs too much and they need to cut deeper, both in terms of headcount. The 100 million restructuring charge they're going to book in the fourth quarter is just the first of many. We hear from analysts, investors and people inside the bank. So they can't wait any longer for the environment to improve. Their structure is no longer suitable for the current environment. And the two new heads who took over from Andrea Orsel, who left last October in a doomed attempt to take over Santander, as you'll remember, the new heads, Piero Novelli and Rob Karofsky, really are under a bit of pressure from investors and the CEO to show that they can perform and they can replicate the performance of the Andrea Orsel years. Well, it'll obviously be some time before we know whether that's going to have happened, but they are at least taking action, I suppose. Thank you for that. Let's move on to our third and final story of the day and a look at Lloyds Bank. Nick, you broke a really interesting tale I'm not sure Lloyd's found it very interesting, uh, about them having mishandled their client wills. What exactly went wrong? Yeah, so Lloyd's used to run this so-called safe custody scheme for customers where you could pay to have them store either valuable items like jewellery or documents like property deeds or the subject of this was wills. The problem was they kept them a little bit too safe in that they failed to return around 9,000 wills to the families of those customers who had died. In the majority of cases, this didn't do too much damage besides maybe causing a bit of distress of getting a phone call from the bank, potentially long after this family member has passed away. And because either a newer will had superseded it or there was another copy stored somewhere else. In several hundred cases, however, the mistake meant that the deceased customer's estate was distributed to the wrong people. 
So this is a pretty embarrassing gaffe for Lloyds. Looking at the reader comments on our story, you can see that there's not much sympathy with the bank's mishandling of this. And it's been another reputational hit, I suppose, after the very embarrassing PPI mis-selling scandal. Obviously, completely different proportions, but it's not going to help them, is it? It kind of highlights why most banks have stopped offering these sorts of services. Because, I mean, you compare it to PPI in financial terms, this is going to be nothing near that sort of scale. I mean, they haven't given a figure for how much it's going to cost to compensate the customers who were affected, but not expected to be material on a financial basis. What it is, as you say, is really embarrassing. And the risk of this sort of embarrassment has led most banks to stop offering safe custody and safe deposit. So Lloyd's actually stopped offering this service to new customers in 2011. RBS, Barclays, HSBC have all pulled out of it because as well as stuff like this where you don't contact customers or maybe lose contact with them, you could lose the items, which has happened in cases before. Or there's a fear that your customers could use the services to store things that they shouldn't be storing, like weapons or drugs or stolen items, which there have been various examples of around the world. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Safety deposit boxes are part of the old style banking that people will have been used to in the, I don't know, 1950s, 60s, 70s. As you say, they've been phased out by mainstream banks in large part over the last few years. But are there any players offering this service now? So the one big one who have been growing in this area in the last couple of years is Metro Bank, who offer it. They're the only high street bank who offer it in all of their branches. And actually, Metro Bank are famous for having these really big, flashy bank branches. And the safe deposit boxes have been key to helping to pay for that. Because you have to pay a fee. They charge sort of, I think it starts around £200 a year to pay for that box. Lloyd's has actually reintroduced the service in a few select branches in the last couple of years, although they no longer allow you to store wills probably just as well. Thank you for that little tale. Well, that's all for this week. Thank you to Nick and Stephen and David and also our guest Eric Moore from Might and Income Fund. And thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com.